Well, good evening. It's great to be with you. Great to share and reflection upon the Word of God tonight. As you know, we've been uh, studying through the book of Proverbs. If you're new with us in the evenings, we look at different sections of Proverbs and think about what does it mean to pursue wisdom. Uh, Proverbs 1 to 9, that's the section we're in, uh, has a number of essays about wisdom, sometimes personified as a person to pursue, and sometimes as in our passage, it's a virtue, something we seek after and and seek to imitate. Our text will begin with an invitation to contemplate virtue, contemplate uh, uh, to pursue the treasure of wisdom, and it will conclude with some warnings about the dangers of not pursuing wisdom. And so tonight, as we think about this passage, I'd like us to consider three questions. What does wisdom look like? Why or what are the benefits of wisdom? And we'll conclude with a, a question, who do we trust in the crux? So let's take a look at our text, Proverbs 3. We'll read verses 21 to 25 of Proverbs chapter 3 and look at these three questions. Beginning with verse 21. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow and I will give it when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with the man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray and ask for the Lord to give us wisdom. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us tonight, that you'd open our minds and our hearts and our wills to who you are and the ways that you have taught us to walk in. And I pray that by your spirit, you would continue your work of transformation, that we might reflect your wisdom to the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first question we'll look at tonight is, what does wisdom look like? If you look at the, particularly the introduction to Proverbs in one, uh, the first seven verses, and then you look throughout the book of Proverbs, there's actually a number of synonyms, a number of different terms that all describe wisdom, but in the original language are different words. And we see two of them at the beginning, sound wisdom and discretion, as we read them in English. Sound wisdom refers to solid judgment, judgment solid judgment that leads to practical, to practical success, to some kind of profit or gain. Maybe it's efficient wisdom. Perhaps the idea here is that wisdom is not theoretical or abstract, but it's the kind of understanding that is practical and has proven results. Solid, tested, reliable, with proven character. And this sound judgment we recognize is based on the rule of God. What does God do? How does he act and behave? And this sound judgment comes from 
him and is a reflection of his character. The other term synonym used for wisdom is discretion. It's interesting because this word is often used negatively, and in its negative sense, it means scheming or devising evil plans. Positively, it is actually reflective of knowledge and prudence. I think it's obvious when you think about its English usage. What is discretion? It's the ability to discern when and where to act, when and where to say which thing, or perhaps more importantly, when to not say a certain thing. So discretion is the ability to have self-control in our speech so we know just the right words to say and we can discern the right time to say them, or again, more importantly, the right time not to say them. So those, that's wisdom and discretion. And if you looked at the title of the sermon in the bulletin, I'm calling it the fruit of wisdom. Because these characteristics that we'll look at in a minute, we'll see some evidences. What does wisdom look like when it lived out? It's fruit produced by pursuing God. It's fruit that God produces in our life. And so I use that term in the way that we think of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is that which the Spirit produces in us. God causes growth and creates characteristics and attributes in us that we weren't able to do, our, do ourselves. So we recognize that we want to pursue these virtues, but they really come from pursuing God and God's work inside of us. And so this fruit will both produce the desire in the will and the ability to do things. But the fruit is also the fruits of God's mercy and kindness for the many, many times we fail. So as we look at these things, we'll recognize we fail more often than we succeed. And it's God's grace and mercy applied by the Holy Spirit that allows us to be forgiven, to understand that forgiveness and to be restored and actually begin that transformation process to where these things are produced in our lives. So what I'm going to do tonight, we're going to jump into the middle of the text because it's verses 27 to 31 that have some of the very practical things that wisdom does. And if you look at these verses, it's interesting that they're all negative commands. Don't withhold good from your neighbor. Don't say this to your neighbor. Don't plan evil. Don't contend. Don't envy. They're all negative commands. Like the Ten Commandments. You'll recognize Nine of the Ten Ten Commandments are also formed negatively, but they're not limited to things we're forbidden from doing. The Ten Commandments give positive instruction in the other direction. So in the same way, these things that we're taught not to do are not simply rules to follow and don't do these things. They actually point us to the opposite kind of action, which is the fruit of wisdom. So let's start with verse 27, and we'll spend most of our time there because it's fascinating when you think of its implications. In our ESV, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. If you translated the first part most literally, which you can see in the footnote, it says, do not withhold good from its owner. Now, this is interesting. The verb is pretty simple, withhold, uh, to keep back, to deny, to hinder. The object of that verb is good, and that can be either uh, a material good, or it could be goodwill, the moral quality of goodness, that you're going to do something good or be good towards your neighbor. Do not withhold good. But then that verb that we translate from whom it is due is actually literally its master or its owner, the one who is Lord over it. 
So ask yourself the question, what claim does your neighbor have over you? The second half makes it very clear. Again, literally, if we just translate it literally, what being in your hand to do it? So what you have the ability, the capacity to do, what is literally in your hand, do not withhold that ability to do good from your neighbor, from the owner of your good. You think about that for a minute. It has a very un-American implication, a very uncapitalist implication. The fir- or two in particular. The first, that which you have in your hand is actually a gift from God. We would all acknowledge this, right? Everything we have is a gift from God. But that's not only our material possessions, it's our abilities, it's our educational background, it's our capacity to do something. Even things that we've learned and studied and trained and practiced in, those are all gifts from God. So the first implication is that whatever you have in your hand is a gift that's given to you to use for God's glory. But the second is the one in your path, that is your neighbor, the one whom you meet, has moral claim upon the good which you possess. Not to seize it, not to steal it, but to ask you for it, to seek your help. You have a moral obligation to do good to your neighbor, and your neighbor has the right to lay claim to that because he is the master of your good according to the implications of this text. That's a little unnerving if you're all about capitalism and personal property rights. I'm not talking about civil legislation. I'm talking about kingdom legislation. So let's spin it around and put it positively. What this verse is teaching us is to actively seek to bless your neighbor with whatever it is you have in your hand. The wise understand this. The wise in the ways of God understand this. And by God's grace are seeking to move in this direction. Let's look at a few more of these verses just briefly. If you look at verses 27 through 29, there's a progression. Don't withhold good. Don't say go away and come back later when you can do something now. Don't delay being good. Don't plan evil. You see this, it's getting, uh, starts with not doing good, but delaying good, then actively plotting evil. There's a progression from bad to worse. And this is followed in verse 30 by this command, don't contend with the man for no reason. I call this the Enneagram 8 warning. Now, if some of you are into Enneagram, maybe you're not. The 8 is called the challenger. Those prone to analyze and consider any assertion, any statement, and often respond by challenging, by uh, disagreeing with that statement, by challenging the veracity of that statement. Everyone in my family says I'm an eight, but I disagree. (laughs) Glad you got that one. This sequence culminates with a warning about being jealous and envious of those uh, who who are violent in their actions. Something like daydreaming about that great one-liner that would silence and humiliate, uh, humiliate your opponents. Or imagining that scene where somehow publicly you are totally vindicated in front of everyone else. And more importantly, that opponent of yours in whatever sphere it is, is totally humiliated. is totally embarrassed 
and ashamed in front of all society while you're vindicated. Those fantasies, that kind of jealousy that what the violent do, we could do, is what it's warning against. So let me flip it back around to the positive and ask ourselves the question. How are we actively brainstorming about how we can bless others around us? How tuned in are we to what they're going through, what they might need, so we can look at what we have in our hands and do something about it? We spend a lot of time, I spend a lot of time, thinking about how to protect my social position and my assets. How much time do I think about, compared to what I'm doing for myself, about how do I protect my neighbor's assets? How can I help advance my neighbor's social position? Let's make a deal that we will brainstorm together about how we can help advance the social position, the economic benefits of others around us. We're blessed to be a blessing. That's what the wise understand. And we do this not by the compulsion of the federal government or of some civil legislation. There's a place for law and order. But we do it in response to the mercy and kindness of goodness that we've experienced. If we're overwhelmed with God's mercy shown us and God's blessing to fill our hands with good things, God's direction for us as wise people is to think, how can we reflect that same blessing and generosity and kindness and goodness to others? Now, it's possible that to know what they need, we'll have to get to know our neighbors. We'll have to get to know those around us. We'll have to get to know those in our city who might be different than we are. How can we move toward them? And I think of our friends in Athens, Greece. George Tolius, the pastor of, I'm thinking some years ago, of one of the first church plants in our Greek church planting network in Glyphada, a suburb of Athens. And when the refugee crisis started in Athens in about 2016, they're not far from the old airport, which had been abandoned, and where they housed these hundreds of thousands of refugees that came to Athens. They didn't ask the question, why are these people here? What are they doing in our neighborhood? They said, this is who's here. How can we serve them? How can we bless them? And they did a variety of things, but in that process, they got to know them. And they realized that people from Syria, from a war zone, people from Afghanistan fleeing that country, were in a very difficult situation, and they had no idea how to live in Europe. And so what they did is they sacrificially gave to buy a small apartment complex of six or seven units where they housed refugees for six to nine months, while they're learning the ways of Europe. And they go visit them, and they got to know them. And in the course of time, they learned what skills they had, what deficits they had, how they could minister to them. They learned who was their neighbor. They got to know their actual situation and then developed ways to be a blessing to them. And you probably then won't be surprised that although these people come from entirely Islamic countries, a number have come to faith in Christ and been baptized and joined their church in Glyphada. They saw their neighbor, they looked at what was in their hands, and they sought to be a blessing to those around them. So the practical part of our text says, don't do these evil self-centered things. Seek to be a blessing to your neighbor. And then the beginning and the end of our text actually give us the benefits. Why would we do this? Why would we give up ourselves? Why would we give up defending ourselves and providing for ourselves to seek others? Well, Verse 21, the verse, first verse in our text, uh, tells us why. Do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. Sorry, verse 22. And they will be life for your soul. 
Who doesn't want that? Life for your soul. That's what we all want. Real life. Not superficial life. And it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or if you're not a Christian. Everyone is about life and life at the deepest level of our soul. Well, this book is promising, is telling us that pursue the wisdom that comes from God and God will grant that life that nourishes, that sustains your soul. The end of our passage gives us a number of warnings about what happens if we don't pursue God and his wisdom. If we pursue God and his wisdom that produces in our lives and gives us honor, favor, and intimacy with God. But if we don't pursue God, if we don't pursue his wisdom, we receive disgrace, scorn, and separation from God. Something no one wants. So there's these warnings at the end. And that's the way with the wisdom literature that Proverbs works. It forces us into a choice where there's only two alternatives, wisdom and foolishness. Now, we all know from our life experience that there's wise and foolish, godly and ungodly, good and evil. But there's also a lot of ground in the middle. There's also a lot of mixed up motives like my own heart. I have some desires that God has really worked on and they, they're more like this. But I got some other desires and some other thoughts and words that are like this. And it is mixed up. But what wisdom literature does, what Proverbs does, is it points us to make a choice. What's our direction? What's our trajectory? Where are we going to head? And Proverbs is an invitation to pursue the virtue, to pursue the personification of wisdom who we know as Jesus. And that will produce life and honor, and intimacy with God. But if we don't, if we pursue the wisdom of this world, if we pursue uh, the wisdom of this age, it produces an alternative to life of the soul, which is not very pleasant. And then in the next couple of verses, in 23 and 24, we see other benefits, benefits of security, confidence, and peace. There's this interesting progression. If you look at... uh, 23 and 24, then you'll walk on your way securely. Your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. And so what we see is this progression from walking to lying down and resting to sleeping. And we see that God will guide us. He will protect us. He will be with us. And as we get more vulnerable from walking where you're alert and you can see around to lying down, when you're a little more vulnerable to sleeping, when you're completely entrusting yourself to someone else, that God is our confidence, that God is present with us, that God guides us. These are the promises he gives us uh, in in this passage. And so this is basically a literary, literary device of walking, lying down, and sleeping, being active in our leisure and in our sleep. That reflects all of life and in all things we do, that the Lord will be with us, be our security, and give us confidence. Now, this would be an easier text to talk about in other weeks. Except when we come to verse 25, it says, Do not be afraid of sudden terror. Sadly, we're all deeply pained and painfully aware of what sudden terror looks like. The shock and the pain and the trauma caused by this shooting at Covenant Prez in Nashville has shaken us. It has wounded us very, very deeply. And as we think about events in our city, in our neighborhoods, 
in our state over the last six to nine months, the frequency of events that would qualify as being called sudden terror is disturbing. Our city, our state, our world seem to be freshly filled with examples of sudden terror. And so when we experience these things, we have that feeling of pain, of loss, of shock. But just below the surface, there then arise another level of feelings. Feelings of betrayal. Feelings of disappointment. You see, somewhere in our soul we're saying, but this isn't supposed to happen to us. We've entrusted ourselves to God. We're God's people. And then the logical questions follow, which we're often afraid to voice. And God, where were you when this happened? I thought you were our protector. I thought you were our shield. What happened? And that goes to further emotion of anger and of what the Bible calls complaint or lament. I don't mean whining. I mean yelling. How? Why? Whoop. How could this happen? Now, I wish I had an answer for you. I wish I could make it simpler or easier or give some deep interpretation. But that is not in my capacity to do. That's what lament is. Lament is where we take all those feelings, all that injustice, all that anger, all that loss and confusion and grief, and without fixing it up, without explaining it, without making it nice and pretty, we just pour it out to God. And it might be tears and grief. It might be a bunch of words we don't say in church. It might be some really raw emotion and some really anger, angry feelings. But we take it to the Lord and we pour it out before him. Only things I can point us to are things that I've seen believers throughout the world and some in the course of history find to be true in times of deep, sudden terror and deep pain. Like when a mortar shell kills your best friend. Or like when you wake up in the morning to find your apartment door nailed shut from the outside and your electricity cut off and your ability to go buy food cut off because the secret police have threatened to arrest you. Or when you find out that death, once again, has visited your neighborhood through violent crime. And you have not yet recovered from the previous trauma, and you have another one to face. What have those believers discovered that we can learn from? I've heard testimonies of how they've discovered that the Lord is our confidence. The Lord is the one we can cry out to in such situations. For who else could we cry out to as we experience such horrific tragedy? Who else is qualified to respond to such trauma, to such injustice that words can't even convey? We experience tragedy, loss, because we live in a fallen world. The reasons for such things are many, and the answers in our knowledge is very limited. We know little, and we understand even less. But who is wise enough 
to address such questions? Who is strong enough to deal with the weight of such moral matters? Who is trustworthy enough to speak on issues of ultimate good and evil? We know it's God alone. Who else would we trust? TikTok? Voices that cry for our attention? A politician? Or even better, someone whose profession is to talk about politicians? Even a well-trained secular psychiatrist? Are these who we will turn to in our hour of greatest need? Friends, no questions of ultimate good and evil, of that level of justice and injustice. Questions of morality at the deepest level can be answered by anyone apart from God alone. You may know that uh, I have some crazy hobbies, one of which is climbing mountains. Generally speaking, I climb on a path. It's on a map. It goes where you just, there's just a path on the ground and you walk up there. Now, it's true, sometimes you get towards the top and the path goes away and it's very rocky. Um, uh, I have nothing, no stories of any, anything like Alex Honnold tells, so it's not that stuff. Uh, but there are places where it gets a little exciting. And, you know, you've got to climb up a mountain, but that's only halfway. You've got to come down as well. And I remember coming down off a sub-peak, and uh, it was exciting. The peak was kind of bulgy, and then the landing spot was actually inside below. It's a very small landing spot, and if you missed it, well, let's say it wouldn't be good. And so I'm coming down on this boulder. I'm by myself. Don't do that. Um, and there's a big crack in the boulder, in the, in the rock face. So I stick my arm way deep into the rock face. And I'm going to put my arm over here on the other side. And I'm going to move down under and land safely on the landing place. Except when I move, which is when you shift your weight, and I pull against the crack, the rock moved. Turns out it wasn't a split in the face. It was its own boulder. And I, my life didn't flash before my eyes, but Wiley Coyote did. None of you know who that is, but... Uh, when he would fall off the cliff to the bottom of the canyon and you see the little smoke come up, then the rock would go down and hit him again. That's what I saw. You can tell I'm still here. Uh, so somehow that didn't happen. I was able to get around. But I can tell you what you don't want to do. When you're at the crux of the route, that's mountain climbing language for the hardest spot, the most risky spot where you're over the cliff, a mistake would be fatal. You don't want to trust something that moves. You don't want to put your foot on a little place that then crumbles and falls away. You want solid ground. You want the mountain itself that won't move. Brothers and sisters, when we come to the crux of our lives and we face the most difficult questions that pain our soul deeply, that we can't possibly come up with a human answer, who are you going to trust? Trust the one who walks with you in the valley of the shadow of death. Trust the one when you're in the boat and the winds are blowing and the rain is coming down and you're sure the boat's about to capsize. Trust the one who sits with you in that boat. And when you face questions of life and death, trust the one 
who met death for you, who before you had to face death, already went and faced your death, taking it upon himself so that you might have life. I don't have the answers, but the Lord is our confidence. And the Lord knows our suffering and pain and walks with us through that and meets us in death. So as we come tonight to celebrate the Lord's Supper, come with your questions. Come with your shouts and your defiance and your confusion. Come with your tears. Meet with him, the one who took death on for you, that you might have life. For the Lord alone is our confidence. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we don't understand this world we live in. We don't understand so much. But Lord, would you be to us our strength, our confidence, the rock that never moves, the hold that never yields, but that holds us firmly. Not because we're holding on, but because you're holding on. Father, we pray that you would bring deep comfort to those who mourn for whatever tragedy they are facing. We know a few, but there's so many more we don't know. Would you be to them a comfort? Would you be to them strength? Would you speak to them of your presence as they grieve, as they wail, as they lament? And would you take them through the storm in your strong arms? We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.